Welcome to today's podcast, using real-time threat intelligence to uncover and identify risks. CSOs and CISOs are constantly looking for better ways to detect and mitigate emerging threats before they can impact the business. Unfortunately, most data collection methods today are manual and unable to quickly identify critical insights on which to make accurate recommendations. Technology can automatically collect, organize, and analyze the entire web to identify new vulnerabilities and emerging threat indicators. Natural language processing, machine learning, and even artificial intelligence tools can now be used to surface threat intelligence in real time from the open, deep, and dark web, enabling risk professionals to efficiently dismiss false positives and detect incidents they might otherwise miss. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence sits down with Christopher Albert, CEO and co-founder of Recorded Future, to discuss the use of real-time threat intelligence by organizations, as well as highlight the threats companies should be most concerned about in 2017 and how to best prepare for them. David, I'll turn it over to you. Greg, thank you very much. Christopher, again, an honor, and uh, it's been our privilege to have you on a variety of panels in the past. Um, Why don't we begin with uh, a bit of background about Recorded Future, uh, what it does, and, and how, you, how you came to found it. Oh, that would be great. No, thanks for having me. So, yeah, so, so um, my background, I'm a computer scientist. My background, I've done a lot of work in uh, analysis, data analysis. People talk about it as big data these days. Uh, started with small data, and I guess it gets bigger every year. Uh, the, but also a lot of work in intelligence and business intelligence and, and these sort of areas. And so we did a lot of fun work on a company called Spotfire, where we helped you know companies and government organizations around the world dealing with structured information data in everything from Excel spreadsheets to massive, massive Oracle databases and and this and the like. And as we eventually sold that company and started thinking about what to do next, it struck us that the web was quickly becoming a just fantastic place where. The world's information was flowing to faster than ever, and and I sort of call it the Olberg uh, law of intelligence that uh, everything eventually ends up on the web. And I eventually uh, sort of originally said that a little bit with a I don't know a, a smile, but unfortunately it seems like it's it's become quite true. And uh, be it sort of the the highest levels of state secrets or cyber weapons and, and so on and so forth, everything eventually ends up in some form on the web. And so you know what does that tell you? That tells you that uh, you should try to organize that information and make it accessible and put it in the hands of risk professionals so they can find the threats before they, uh, before they uh, become a problem. And that's what we're trying to do. All right. Well, different people have uh, different definitions of risks and threats. Uh, why don't we start with what you're looking for and um, sort of the insights that you're providing through mining the uh, web and the dark web. Great question, because you know you're, you're totally right. Uh, there's many, many aspects to this, and and we as a company are very focused on what I would call cybersecurity, uh, but maybe with a little bit of a broader scope than than most companies that are in cybersecurity, because they they tend to be very focused on a narrow sliver of technical uh, data. Uh, you know, what, what's up with this IP address or what do we know about this file hash or what can you tell me about this domain? And, and we're firm believers in that 
if you're going to understand the world of cyber threats, you have to understand it with the intelligence context as background, and you have to understand it with the uh, even geopolitical and business context as, as background. So, so our collection spans, uh, you know, a, a wide variety of sources. Uh, you know, we'd like to use the military sort of or intel term of all source. Now, all source is an ambitious word because it sort of implies that you have access to it all. And, uh, you know, with a marketing hat on, maybe that's, you know, that's what we say. But, you know, one should also be humble in Intel. It sort of always comes down to the piece of information you don't have. Um, but that said, uh, we've sort of tried to organize our, our work and, and even have sort of started our company. We, we got started in open sources. And uh, I like to say to people, there's even in open sources, it's quite different from you know, doing a good job of handling New York Times and Washington Post to dealing with Yemeni newspapers or, or China People Daily in Chinese, and then all the way down to things that are technically open, but just very hard to get to. Um, then in dark web, there's, you have the same sort of thing. There's uh, information that may technically be in this wonderful dark web uh, on the Onion Network, but all the way down to maybe the, the last 10 Russian forums, the, the hardest to get to ones that you really have to go to work to, to get to, and likewise in other geographies, be in Brazil or China and a few other places. So, and then finally, there are other aspects as well, you know, more going back to that technical information I talked about before, and then figuring out how can we pre-connect the dots between these different stovepipes of information, and that's what we made, our, made it our mission to do. And as you um, look at the landscape, I know you say you focus on cyber threats, but uh, I've actually had the privilege of knowing you for a number of years. And I know that you're actually looking at a wide range of threats, many of which manifest themselves through the portals of cyber. So whether it's terrorism or illicit finance um, or what I'll refer to as the theft of uh, IP, uh, industrial espionage, uh, state espionage, et cetera. Talk to us about what you're seeing out there in terms of the vectors of the threats and uh, how you're actually able to advise clients um, about sort of what, what they are facing and what they can do about it. No, I, I think that's great, actually, the way, because otherwise, you know, the, the way you're talking about it there is, is great, because it, otherwise it, it's sort of a risk that it gets focused on the technicalities of open source and closed source or dark web and, and so on. And, and obviously, the, the, it's more meaningful to either talk about it in terms of the threat vectors or, frankly, the sort of the, the use cases that security professionals are trying to solve for. So, you know, look, there's everything from sort of the the... the and I, I don't, I hesitate to even call it simple, but the most straightforward, look, I want to know when there's uh, weird things being said about my brand or my brand is being dragged into things, you know, that are not good for me uh, to sort of variations of that where uh, my, my credentials as, as a company or individuals or key, key people and, and key here can be everything from very senior managers all the way down to people with specific technical uh, roles. Um, uh, being tracking credentials uh, in, in various sort of ways. And then all the way over to where the threats may be, to your point, intellectual property that ends up in places uh, that it's not supposed to, to be, to where uh, bad guys find ways to break into you, break into your neighbor, break into people in your supply chain, break into people with the same sort of lock mechanisms that you may have, 
And, and you know, you want to track all of that. And, and so what we've done is to figure out a pretty clever methodology for how to map, up, map out the threat surface of a company and then be able to map that to the, to the set of information that we're collecting so that we can get very relevant information to people and, and, and to companies when these threats are emerging. And, you know, sometimes it can be very pointed, very specific that, you know, here's a threat to this company. There's a new piece of banking malware surfacing, which is, you know, literally going after a specific bank. And, and sometimes it's more, it's more subtle. And, and obviously it's the more subtle that it's the harder stuff to deal with. Um, but uh, we want to be able to do both. That's great. And um, as you sort of think about this, um, there are a variety of camps when people think about cybersecurity. Um, I think they're becoming more, obviously, they, out of necessity, they have to be more sophisticated in thinking about what they need to do and um, sort of how to do it. But there are certainly two camps. There are the camps that try to keep the risk um, outside the organization. And increasingly, I think, as people come to the realization that it's not a matter of if I will be attacked or penetrated, it's just when and how and how bad. And um, there's a school of thought, certainly, that I've been exposed to that says the, uh, there's no way to avoid the risk, but you can certainly mitigate. And the ability to detect early and the ability to respond quickly are the keys to sort of surviving uh, the threats in this current environment. And it sounds to me as though that's precisely your philosophy, the ability early detection leading to early response. No, I, I think that's right on. The, so I like to say that, you know, as, as, as security professionals, whether you sort of started with it in the physical security world or, or the uh, information security world, of course, we'd like to think that we can build very high and very thick walls that, that keeps the, and, and again, we'll use the term bad guys out. Now, that said, in reality, when we, and this is in particular true in the information security world, where we tend to sort of buy and buy more and more uh, security products and sort of stack them on top of each other. They're incompatible. They, they are not connected. They're covering different areas. There's going to be a lot of paths to slip through. And if you take that sort of the, the, this sort of uh, uh, this perception that we're building a thick wall, I think actually what we're building is a maze. Uh, and what's, there are two aspects of that maze that are interesting, that A, we have a high degree of turnover among information security professionals, that's very well known, uh, and, and so that turnover leads to sort of a, not only are we building a maze, but it's a maze where the people that we have hired who are supposed to know their way through the maze, they're moving on, they're quitting, they're going to a new job, they're gonna hire paid opportunities somewhere. So, so we're sort of losing our own ability for, for knowing the maze. And then number two, whereas we as defenders need to know every path through the maze and try to keep it clear and, and, and you know, plugged, the bad guy just needs to find one path in and, and need to be, just need to find one at the time he needs to get in there. So, so you know, this ends up with a, you know, it's, it's tough. And, and so in that situation, there are only so many things you can do. And, and 
you know, you need to be able to go out and look for the threats before they get to you. So that's the sort of the proactive early, and that's the, and, and, and we put our military hat on, that's doing recon outside the, the firewall, outside the wall of the city, and, and that analogy is good. I think to your point, when an incident happens, you quickly also want to figure out, because that incident will be there, uh, it doesn't matter how, how fancy you are, and when that incident happens, you want to be able to say, was I a target of choice here? Was there somebody who was really trying to get to just me? Or was I just one of the 43 banks that they were trying to get to? Because that will inform you again. Uh, you know, how word should I be? What sort of response should I take? So information and, and intelligence plays an enormously important role here in this sort of world where it's, we really just can't build walls. We're building mazes, and, and I think that's the reality. Maybe you can share with us, um, because you've been at this for a while, um, sort of where the world is going, how the nature of the threats have changed and evolved, uh, the nature of the actors have changed and evolved, and sort of where we're heading. And I'll note, um, at least from a headline standpoint, um, the media cycle is, I guess for the first time, uh, focused on how um, many people or how ubiquitous this threat is, how many people actually have the resources to launch, how sort of inexpensive it is and how well the barriers of entry are to those who want to participate in these activities. That's a great question. You know, we always try to, we want to create these buckets of of actors. And, um, you know, there's the, and I'll do the same here. So, you know, you have the, the, the bucket of hacktivists, which we actually haven't heard so much about recently maybe, but, you know, the anonymous of the world who are sort of uh, gathering in, in chat rooms and, and getting angry at various sort of corporate activities, for example, or government activities and uh, doing DDoS attacks and, and, and the like, the, sort of the, the hacktivists. We've got criminals who, yes, they want to make money. Uh, so that's one sort of uh, group of people, many of them from Russia and uh, Moldova or Ukraine or sort of the for, former Soviet Union. And then we've got, you know, I like what you said before, espionage activities here, intelligence agencies. Uh, we tend to sometimes call them APTs and so on, but I think it's better to actually talk about them as, as, as intel agencies because that's what, frankly, they are. Uh, and then finally, maybe there is this sort of cyber terrorism bucket. I think it's pretty uninteresting. Uh, I'm sure somebody won't agree with, with that, but I'll put that aside. I do think that don't ask, underestimate the, the tinkers, the people who sort of, Fuck, they, they sort of they hack for the fun, uh, you know, of it. The lolts uh, and and uh, that that's not to be underestimated. But if we stick with the first three buckets, you know, what's interesting here is that we're starting to see maybe less of bucketizing here. We're seeing methods uh, uh, that are used. That's what we saw here in the WannaCry side of things, where we started with something that was presumably uh, the the sort of uh, vulnerability in a Microsoft product that's being exploited by the U.S. government. It gets stolen one way or the other. It ends up with the Russians who give it to these shadow brokers guys who, who sort of uh, pass it on to WikiLeaks. Pretty incredible change just that, isn't it? And now some guy, you know, who knows, uh, uh, presumably some criminals. We, we, I think that will we'll yet to be seen where it lands. But through that, again, back from Microsoft's vulnerability to, to uh, U.S. government exploiting to being stolen by the Russians to the shadow bro- being 
given to the shadow brokers, who, who then uh, gives it to WikiLeaks, and then it ends up in the hands of the criminals, launch a, a, an attack on a vulnerability that spreads across the world. That shows you, A, how vulnerable these things are. It shows how quickly these, um, the, these uh, methods and TTPs, if you want to call them that, but those call them methods, how quickly they can change hands. And, and frankly, you know, over some period of time here, not to try to be a scaremonger, but it's not going to get much better. Eventually, we'll get better. But there is too many vulnerabilities out there, and, and they're too easy to put to work. And apropos of that, I don't know whether you saw the comments of the president of Microsoft, um, but he um, highlighted, number one, that um, simple steps such as security patches. Two, he also took an extraordinary step in helping those who were actually using Microsoft software illegally, meaning they hadn't purchased it. Uh, but three, he was very much pointing a finger at the uh, national security apparatus of not just the United States, but other countries, and basically suggesting that um, there's a almost spy versus spy or state versus state aspect to this. And um, it's ending up um, as a consequence, uh, a number of corporations, now schools, hospitals, et cetera, become sort of victims as a result of uh, the drive to exploit uh, security flaws, but also how these things leak out, as you were alluding to. And he uh, essentially called for a Geneva Convention uh, between states uh, about the use of cyber warfare and, and about the obligations when detecting flaws in, uh, in software. I don't know if you have any thoughts around that. And obviously, this was tied into the uh, WannaCry uh, yeah, breach no, no, that exactly. just transpired. Yeah. So, um it's probably not a bad idea, the Geneva Convention of this. I think it's pretty highly unrealistic. Uh, I think any state leader who has been exposed to getting SIGINT, uh, you know, signals intelligence in their hands when they basically get to read the raw thoughts of a, of, of a leader, be it an adversary or a pseudo-ally, pseudo and maybe in some cases even the ally, um, that state leader... Uh, at the same time saying that he should stop getting this sort of information uh, is, is probably an unrealistic outcome, especially because for, for such a Geneva Convention to be realistic, it, it's, um, it, it's just going to have to take a lot of countries. You know, we know that you know, the Germans cried foul hugely over you know, whatever, and, and, but then we also learned that they happily applied uh, SIGINT methods towards other countries at the same time. So, you know, people will say a lot of things publicly, but countries are basically on an addiction curve for SIGINT. And uh, as long as that addiction for SIGINT is there, then countries will exploit vulnerabilities in information systems. That's been happening for the last 100, 200 years of, of exploiting communications, and that's not going to stop. stop. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't do much better work of protecting secrets. Clearly, something got and you know, just went enormously wrong in protecting secrets here, and we should demand, and literally demand, protection of those secrets at the highest levels, and, and, and that means that what we currently call highest levels is not good enough. And number two, we as information security professionals can do a better job of uh, keeping house clean. You know, so in this case, um, 
so I'm not the technical expert on WannaCry, but you know, you look to the two two pieces. One, the sort of the the transmission vector here of how this got uh, distributed via this this eternal blue vulnerability, as they call it, or eternal blue exploit. That the the patch for that has been out there for three months, and and people are frankly just too lazy with their patching, and and that needs to happen regardless of if it comes from you know, something that originated with a state actor or not, people need to apply more money to patching. And they need to inform their patching with intelligence. And there was information. We, we frankly, uh, at Recorded Future, uh, about a month and a half ago, put out public research where we said, Eternal Blue, this, you know, these, these, this, this exploit, is being discussed in the Russian and Chinese underground, and you need to patch. We put that, that's on our public blog. It was right there. And then I think the actual uh, uh, malware, or I don't know we call it the, the ransomware here, people, that, that was not an original piece of ransomware either. So now I don't know, I remember if the exact action, what the exact action there, but it was not novel. There was known sort of ways of dealing with that as well. So now you could say that, okay, that's easy for me to sit here and say that, you know, just get your act together and then a poor British hospital with no budget, you know, that, that's the reality too there. So I think here it's frankly a matter of Microsoft and others need to make their products better to, from an upgrade point of view. They need to be, you know, it can't be that it's, you basically have to take down the hospital's upgrade. This stuff's got to happen more smoothly. So um, there are a lot of actions to be taken. Right, and in fairness, he acknowledged that as well. The, uh, uh, the process of implementing the software updates and patches are, have yet to be simplified. Yeah, no, I always um, like to say I hold up my yeah. iPhone and I push the up, update all button, and I know that, and I do that button, I love it, and, and I know that everything is still going to work. If I went into uh, the NHS in England, not to beat on them, but, you know, I know that it would be, uh, <laughs> the whole thing would break if I hit the patch all and, or update all. And frankly, that would happen even at the fanciest bank on Wall Street, which probably has the biggest information but, or IT budget altogether. If I upgraded it all, it would all die. So that can't be like that, obviously. So Christopher, let me um, just unpack uh, your last point because I, I do know that uh, you did post on, on, on the threat. Tell us how you sort of knew to post. There's a, there's a lot of information uh, on the internet. Uh, this is about actionable intelligence. It's about knowing how to drink from the fire hose. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you identify these threats and what you do when you when you do identify them. Good good question because you know the, I think we're sort of coming into a world where you know where I don't remember when the the um, uh, we we sort of take tend to take the word actionable intelligence back to the 9/11 Commission. Uh, you probably remember better than I when that was published. That was 2003, 2004, or something like that. But you know, uh, we're now at a point where we frankly have too much actionable intelligence. So even if I, I I just can't take all the actions. So that I think that's sort of the problem here. So you know, the, in terms of what we did here. Um, uh, so go back to where we first saw the rumors of, you know, st stolen tool sets from the U.S. government, and you know, we started tracking that, and and eventually these uh, this this actor shadow brokers popped up as, you know, and they they had a Twitter handle, they had a Medium website or Medium word blog, sort of Medium blog site, I think, they had a bunch of different places where they published their information. 
and and we started tracking that and tra- you know tracking them, and then at some point you know a couple of months back here they sort of jacked it up you know if you remember originally they were asking for a million dollars in Bitcoin for somebody who wanted to buy it from them and they tried a couple of different things and they frankly didn't get much money for it you know the people weren't really willing to pay up, but eventually um, the they changed their their approach and and was you know sort of they gave it to WikiLeaks and. The, um, so we've been tracking that very carefully, and, and one of the ways that we think of as a proxy for being inside the criminal's head, because frankly we can't be inside the criminal's head, that, that's hard, but the, the underground, and whether it's the Russian underground or the Chinese underground, is, is a pretty good proxy for what's going on in these guys' heads. Because what we can look for there are literally the software vulnerabilities that they're working on and what exploit kits they're putting together. So an exploit kit, and frankly, some of these things that we found in here are the, the U.S. government's exploit kits. So what an exploit kit is, is, is something that provides a, a bundled up, literally what it is, what it sounds like. It's a bundled up set of tools that you use to, to attack, say, a bank, say, any corporation. It's sort of a, it will both get in through firewalls or, or in, onto desktops, whatever it now may need to do, and it will... Uh, also pr- typically sort of uh, provide a payload, uh, which in this case was a piece of ransomware. And the, the, this exploit kit here uh, uh, that, we're, that we've been tracking and, and, and a whole set of them in, inside the Russian underground, these, these exploit kits are typically discussed about in terms of these CVEs or these critical vulnerabilities. And so we track that very carefully. And so when we see new vulnerabilities popping up, that tells us something is interesting. And in this case, we saw not just interesting vulnerabilities, but they were connected to this Shadow Brokers release. And that told us, man, we got to highlight this. And, and so then we, uh, we sort of wrote about that as a way to sort of <laughs> elevate um, uh, the interest. We also risk score all of this. And actually, our product does that automatically. So those risk scores will, will go to the top for things that sort of end up in their in the juicy forums and so people will automatically be alerted on that and and so on and so forth Christopher in the uh, few minutes we have remaining um, I wanted to highlight the other side of your um, practice at recorded future and by the way as I've said to you before it's uh, such a simple but very very revealing name so I love the name of the company but uh, not only not only are you uh, looking prospectively, but I know you are called upon uh, when events such as um, the recent, you know, water cry attacks occur to help to look at the landscape almost a little bit in hindsight, but also to monitor things going forward. Because one of the big questions, of course, that arises is attribution. Who's behind these various acts? And maybe if you could just take... Uh, a minute or two to talk about some of the work that you do in, in terms of um, identifying who the actors are behind some of these threats and the incidents and what you're able to learn and what you're able to share. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's funny because attribution is one of these things that if if you think about it from a law enforcement 
point of view, it's incredibly important because if your your business and you know that David better than anybody, if your if your business is to put people behind jail or be, behind bars, then yeah, then attribution is sort of without that you ain't getting very far. Um, on the other hand, if you're an intelligence agency, sometimes you may care less. Uh, uh, you probably care, but you you may be more interested, in, frankly, in other flows of information. Um, we and, and if you're a corporation, uh, there are some corporations who are incredibly interested in attribution, and that could be because those people come from a, a, a sort of an intel background or law enforcement background, or they can be the you know sort of the inverse where they're like, frankly, I don't really care. I know that a lot of people are going to attack me, and I just want to make sure that I'm fully patched to the relevant threats. So what we do is we try to think about it in the following way: we want to, as I mentioned before pre-connect all the dots that there are in the world. We know that we can't connect all the dots, but we can try to pre-connect as many of the, dot, of the dots possible so that whether it's a Russian actor in a, in a forum and we track tens of thousands of them um, and connect them to the tool sets that they're involved with, the targeting that they do, uh, the, the malware that they use and down to the indicators, which are more fleeing, sort of like, you know, they, they come and go, but it's still important to track, you know, what email addresses have they, they been using, what Bitcoin addresses have they been using, what IP addresses, hashes, domains, and so on and so forth. So whether that's for the Russian actors, the, the criminals, or it's for the government actors, we track some, you know, 150 to 200 government actors in total, probably more actually, uh, and, and then many of the hacktivists as well. And as we sort of try to organize that data, it is to really help our customers to be able to do that attribution. Now, we will then, every now and then, publish research where we take it to the next level, and, and we do that in both for our customer sort of base, and, and sometimes we'll go public with it. Um, ultimately, we think of our job being to enable our customers to do this, and, and again, some customers care a lot about the attribution and some care less but it's something that we want to enable for sure. Christopher, again, thank you so much uh, for your insights. Uh, more to come, and I'm actually going to commit you in advance um, to participation in some of the events we have coming up because um, you and your company and your team are doing remarkable, remarkable work at a very, very important uh, time in history. And uh, as you we're discussing attribution. I'll go back to one of the original points you made, which is virtually all information uh, lives online. It's the ability to find it, understand it, organize it, and uh, you know, basically uh, decipher its meaning. So, thank you for extraordinary conversation, but also extraordinary work over these years. Thank you, David. Thank you, and consider me committed. I'm looking forward. Okay, to great. <laughs> okay, Christopher. Thank you again, and look forward to catching up. Thank you all. All right. Very good. Thank you.